Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And if you miss any of the live broadcasts, the show will be available in podcast format on iTunes and all of the major podcasting platforms, but also now on iHeartRadio if you have a smart television and Spotify. If you subscribe and listen to your music on Spotify, just search for The Sunday Wire and you'll find our episodes there as well. Now, before the break, we were talking about the emerging situation in Iran and also specifically between the United States with Israel lurking in the background as part of the one of the main drivers of this crisis. And joining us now on the live link, uh, we're very fortunate to be able to talk to who is probably one of the, the, the foremost experts, at least in international relations on this topic. He's joining us from the University of Tehran in Iran. His name is Dr. Mohammed Mirandi, joining us on the live link right now. Hello, Dr. Mirandi. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to be with us. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and it couldn't be more timely, actually, Dr. Mirandi, uh, because, well, we'll talk about what's happening now in terms of the breakdown of the JCPOA, Iran nuclear deal, as it's known in the West. Uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll also hopefully get into a broader discussion about what is driving the U.S. policies and Iranian and U.S. relations in the Middle East, and hopefully we'll get into that later. But just to begin with, Mohammed, we just learned this morning Iran announced that it will be resuming uh, enrichment, and so this is uh, b- beyond the levels that were. Uh, agreed in the JCPOA Iran nuclear agreement, and they have notified uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency of what they're doing. And this is uh, in response to what seems to be a failure uh, by the European partners in the JCPOA, the P5 plus one, to give some kind of compensation to Iran for what's been lost and what's happened in terms of economic suffering as a result of the United States withdrawing from that deal in May 2018 and the sanctions that came on afterwards uh, against Iran. But firstly, just walk us through how how is this being viewed right now in Iran and, and what do you see coming uh, over the horizon, at least in the next couple of weeks on this? Well, the Iranians have um, been abiding by the nuclear deal since um, it was signed and it uh, the nuclear deal came about as a result of many years of negotiations as you know as I'm, and I'm, as I'm pretty sure many of your viewers or sorry listeners know as well but um, the problem really is that uh, the deal ever since day 1 the has had has been a problem because under obama the americans were violating the deal even as i said the iranians were abiding by it from from literally from day 1 and um, then under Trump, of course, the violations increased, and ultimately the the United States pulled out of the deal altogether. And uh, the Europeans, the Iranians, were seriously contemplating leaving the deal after the Americans left. But the Europeans literally begged the Iranians to give them a few weeks to find a solution. Those few weeks lasted for... Uh, over a year. And uh, the Iranians decided that uh, this can't continue because Trump is waging economic warfare, in his own words. 
and he constantly threatens Iran with obliteration, and that is a, a threat to bring about genocide and to create a holocaust. You can't obliterate a nation without uh, using nuclear weapons. So that is a, a an act of terrorism that's a, and um, a violation of international law itself. And uh, in addition to that, the Americans are bullying, the U.S. government is bullying other countries to violate the agreement and to not to do any form of trade with Iran. So while no other country in the world, except for the Israeli and Saudi regimes and the Emirates, um, they accept the American government's illegal demands, but the Americans are bullying many countries into fearfully accepting what uh, Trump demands of them. So the Iranians have been saying increasingly under public pressure, the Iranian government, that we cannot continue like this. We cannot have a deal where only one side abides by its commitments and the other side does whatever it wants. The Iranians waited to give the Europeans some time and also to show the international community that contrary to the narrative that we all know very well exists in the West, in Western countries, uh, that uh, Iran is causing trouble and that Iran is the source of all evil and that sort of nonsense. But contrary to that narrative, it's the Iranians who are actually very clearly showing patience and who are uh, trying to prevent the region from moving towards greater tensions and a very dangerous situation. But after a period of time, the Iranians saw that the Europeans did nothing. And more importantly, the Iranians saw that many in the United States were in the government were beginning to interpret Iran's patience as a sign of weakness. So the Americans thought that they, the American government thought that they could increase sanctions and increase pressure and have no pushback. So the Iranians decided that from two months ago, they would begin to decrease their commitments to the nuclear deal. And this act by Iran is legal because if anyone reads Article 26 and Article 36, or alternatively, uh, Paragraph 26 and Paragraph 36, Iran has the right to decrease its commitments when the other side violates the deal. But you have to go through the article and you'll see what mechanism exists there. So Iran is uh, not only carrying out these or lessening, decreasing these commitments based on the deal itself, but also Iran still continues to abide by most of its commitments as we speak. So, which of course in future stages, if the Europeans do not, because this is why Iran is doing, this is why the Iranians are decreasing their commitments, because they're trying to pressure the Europeans to start seriously moving towards abiding by its commitments. So Iran is decreasing its commitments to put pressure on the Europeans to begin abiding by its commitments. That's basically it. And as time moves forward, if Europeans fail to do so, Iran will increasingly decrease its commitments, and ultimately we will reach a stage, reach a stage where the Iranians will have to exit the agreement. So the ball is in the Europeans' court. The Iranians have been abiding by the deal. The Europeans have not. They promised to do something, and they haven't. The INSTEX, um, that mechanism that they've developed, is an empty vessel. Uh, 
and it's not anywhere near what they were supposed to do with regards to the nuclear deal. So the Iranians are waiting for the Europeans to shift gear, to begin to grow a spine, and to begin implementation. And if the Europeans begin implementation, Iran will immediately reverse the um, actions that it is now taking to reduce its commitments in certain areas. And uh, INSTEX, just uh, for people who don't know, that's uh, what they would call the special purpose vehicle. And this is a, a, a financial vehicle that's designed to allow European countries to, to trade uh, with Iran or other countries as well to trade with Iran to avoid the dollar mechanisms uh, which the United States uh, control. But as as Dr. Mirandi has pointed out correctly, it is an empty vessel. It's not capitalized. It doesn't have nearly the financial backing to do anything significant. And uh, and there's no guarantee the United States is not going to uh, attack companies, uh, individual companies located in European countries that are tr- seen to be trading with Iran or avoiding uh, U.S. sanctions. So counter sanctions, if you will. Uh, so is it, so it's really uh, beyond an empty vessel, Dr. Morandi. It's also it's not going to protect uh, any corporations or companies uh, should the U.S. Uh, go after them. Is, isn't that right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. What the Europeans have failed to do is that they've failed to protect their businesses and their businessmen and women from the United States. So the Americans are threatening anyone who does business with Iran. Uh, and threatening to deprive them of access to financial institutions. So the Europeans, what they have to do is that they have to put pressure on the United States to say, if you punish our citizens, then we'll punish you. The, the United States is basically intruding in the international the internal affairs of European countries. They're dictating terms. They're dictating who the Europeans can trade with and who they cannot trade with. And the American government is doing that increasingly with, you know, how the Europeans deal with Russian companies and how uh, the Europeans deal with China. And uh, basically, the Americans are trying to turn Europe into a uh, a series of, of countries that uh, are bound to the United States and who only simply trade with who the Americans tell them to trade with. And ultimately, the Iranians are saying, well, if you cannot uh, if you cannot show independence, if you cannot defend your sovereignty, if you cannot protect your citizens, and if you cannot protect your companies, then why are you sitting at the negotiating table? So the Iranians are telling the Europeans that, look, either you show your strength, you protect your sovereignty, or ultimately we, ne- we leave the deal. The Europeans have to make a decision. But that decision could become very costly if the Europeans do nothing, because tensions in the region would progressively increase. Iran will move towards towards the exit door, and I think tensions in the region uh, will continue to rise, and that will create a situation that is not at all good for EU security. So either the Americans have to sacrifice themselves for the U.S. government and for Trump, or they have to start thinking seriously about their own national interests. Yeah, I would say this, if anything, this is the biggest test 
for Brussels in terms of uh, exerting some level of uh, usefulness uh, as a as a as a European collective or a super state or a federal state. I'm sure it has aspirations to become that, but it, this is a real test here. Uh, can they actually exert uh, some independence from the United States? Uh, within the, the, the broader international community, as they call it. But this isn't the first time the EU has been sort of caught between the U.S. and a target nation. Back in, I think it was 1981, 1980, Reagan threatened a number of European firms with uh, crippling sanctions and counter sanctions and fines and so forth. Uh, if they went ahead and for a proposed pipeline, uh, I think it was an oil, oil or gas pipeline from Siberia from the, within the Soviet Union at the time. And in the end, uh, the European countries, led by France, uh, they actually moved to protect their own firms. But uh, the, and the United States relented in the end. They actually gave in when those individual European countries stood up for their own corporations' interests. And uh, in the UK as well, actually, did the same. So, But this seems to be a different environment, uh, Dr. Morandi, in terms of international relations right now. It seems like the United States is getting compliance on the threatening its own allies uh, with, with this issue. It's incredible. Yes, but the problem, I think, for the U.S. government is that it's creating a lot of contempt among many people even in states allied or friendly to the United States. And Trump is very unpopular across the world. And I know many of his supporters would say, who cares? But in reality, if you are disliked, you are, your brand is damaged. And therefore, when your brand is damaged, your sales are damaged and your credibility is damaged and your effectiveness is Damage and your position at the negotiating table is damaged. So I think that the current president in the United States and his team are harming the United States in a, in a big way, although they are harming other countries. But they're also, I think, um, creating a convergence among nations that, uh, that leaves the United States out. So, for example, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians are moving much closer to each other right now because the Russians have been sanctioned repeatedly by Trump's opponents because of the accusations over uh, the 2016 elections. So they've wrecked relations with Russia out of spite, out of hatred towards Trump. Trump himself has recklessly damaged relations with China, the way he's been behaving and abusing them and insulting them and trying to hum humiliate them is, is not a smart way to carry out negotiations. And the economic warfare that Trump is imposing on Iran is seen as brutal, but also illegal and irrational because the United States has a, had a deal with Iran. And many people in Iran felt that the government gave too many concessions in the, over this deal. So, the United States is pushing these three countries together, and that also makes countries that are close to these three countries move away from the United States. So the whole of Central Asia will effectively be pushed away from the United States by, US own, it's, by its own policies. Countries around Iran that are highly influenced by Iran will move away from the United States. Countries in Southeast Asia and countries in South Asia that are close to Iran and China, they will gradually move away from the United States because the United States is 
behaving aggressively across the board. So while and and Europe is becoming increasingly um, ir- irrelevant because it's showing that it has no will, and this is creating divisions in Europe itself. So right now, the, I mean, Instex has no real impact, but it does show that the Europeans, symbolically speaking, dislike what the United States government is doing. So no matter how you look at it, this is not a good policy for the United States. They can hurt Iran, they can hurt China, they can hurt Europe, they can hurt uh, Mexico, they can hurt uh, the Russians, but ultimately, uh, they, uh, the United States, this is not the United States post-Second World War, where it was roughly half of the global economy. This is the United States, which is heavily in debt, which is its share in the global economy is uh, a fraction of what it was after the Second World War. It's still uh, either the largest economy or the second largest economy based upon how you calculate it. But it is not where it was. So instead of trying to build bridges, the, the United States is currently burning bridges. And also to, to, to go back a few steps, you know, how we got to this current impasse. And in May uh, 2018, the Trump administration announces it's going to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And, of course, uh, Donald Trump had been talking this up on the campaign trail, calling the JCPOA the worst deal he's ever seen, although it's uh, it's debatable whether he actually read any of it at that point or even now, some people say. And that's not a joke, by the way. But uh and then later, Benjamin Netanyahu boasted that uh, he was responsible for pushing Trump to withdraw from the agreement. And this is all predicated also on accusations that uh, Iran's you know, secretly uh, pursuing a, a nuclear weapons program, but also that it has malign influence in the region. And this is a quote from the State Department's uh, new spokesman, spokeswoman, Morgan Ortegas. And she says the Trump administration continued to hold the Iranian regime accountable for activities that threaten the region's stability and harm the Iranian people. This includes denying Iran any pathway to a nuclear weapon. And, and that's the long and the short of the justification for their policy. Everything is kind of predicated on these accusations that Iran is a malign influence in the region and it's secretly pursuing a nuclear weapon somehow. So it's, it must be frustrating because uh, a lot of the accusations of Iran's malign influence are very difficult outside of the kind of reality bubble that exists in the Beltway in Washington, D.C. And so I, I, I'm just going to ask, you know, how frustrating is it from a diplomatic point of view to see a lot of these claims like Iran is somehow backing al-Qaeda? We, you've heard everything from Iran's involved in 9-11 to et cetera. And so that's the, the world's number one state sponsor of terror. This gets kind of repeated on Fox, especially quite regularly. Uh, it's in everybody's bullet point talking point memo. How do, how do you, how's Tehran dealing with this? Because there's a lot of disinformation out there, and it seems to be dominating Washington's positions right now. Well, uh, there's a lot to be said. I mean, your question was very complex, so it, my, my reply may be a bit long. But first, the first thing I, I'd like to remind your listeners is that if you want to understand what I'm trying to say, you have to sort of go back to... The, American, the United States in the 1950s, and how the United States and how 
blacks, African Americans, Latinos, minorities, Japanese, Asians, Chinese Americans, uh, Filipinos, they were depicted in uh, American society, on television, in Hollywood. Right. So before the civil rights movement, overwhelmingly the 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 the, the narrative about minorities in the United States was uh, often a caricature of reality. What I argue is that the depiction of Iran in the United States post-revolution, for a host of reasons, is very much like the depiction of minorities in the United States before the civil rights movement. I don't mean to say that after the civil rights movement everything is fine and that African Americans are now, you know, they have equal rights or or they're treated equally or, or, or other minorities. I'm, that's not what I'm saying, but obviously, or, or Native Americans and, and that sort of thing. That's not what I'm saying, but obviously the situation has changed. It's very different from what it was back then. I think if anyone goes back and looks through, uh, let's say, uh, old Hollywood movies, they would understand what I'm saying. So I, I understand that it is very easy to demonize Iran in the United States because the narrative on Iran is so negative. It's evil, it's, you know, the mullahs and that sort of, you know, stuff that really doesn't make any sense. It's you, it, when you walk around Tehran or any other city, it's just like anywhere else. It's uh, We have a constitution, we have a government, people go drive, people, I don't know, ride on uh, buses, they go around on motorcycles, women drive, we have women pilots, we have my boss at the university is a woman. It's not what the sort of, it's not the picture that many Americans are used to. The reality is very different from the narratives that the American population is fed. So having said that, and so therefore a lot of the a lot of this nonsense is easily accepted by Americans because it fits the the, the, the description of Iran. Except I think some things are just a bit too far uh, go go too far because America I mean for example 9/11 I think ordinary Americans know quite well that 15 of the 19 attackers were Saudi and all of them followed the Saudi Arabian ideology, the Wahhabi ideology. And this ideology, which was a very obscure ideology, only grew in importance through the U.S.-Saudi alliance. And these extremists were funded in Afghanistan to fight the, the Soviet Union. In fact, Brzezinski, a few years, a while, a, a briefly before, before he died in an interview, admitted that actually even before the Soviet Union went into Afghanistan and invaded the country and occupied the country, the Americans were supporting the extremists in order to encourage the Soviet Union to invade the country. So the American government, the U.S. National Security Advisor, sacrificed a nation for U.S. interests and created an extremist there. And this is an interview he carried out. All you have to do is someone use a search engine, Brzezinski, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan, Soviet Union. They, they can find it. They, they can find the link. If anyone wants it, they can send me an email and I'll find it for them. So, but other than that, in the, as we speak today, one of the ironies is that the United States is actually supporting Al-Qaeda as we speak. The Al-Qaeda right now in our part of the world occupies two areas. One is in Yemen, 
where they are fighting alongside the Saudis and the Emiratis. This is, of course, as I said, uh, with regards to Afghanistan, this is also public knowledge. All the documentation is there. Yeah, I, I have a few articles on Middle East Eye as well as Al Jazeera. If, they, if people read those articles, they can, uh, they can see the links and find the evidence. And also in Idlib in Syria. In northern Syria right now, uh, a part of the country is occupied by Al-Qaeda. And that, uh, that, that Al-Qaeda group and its affiliates are being supported by U.S. allies and the United States as we speak. So the same group that carried out 9-11, the same group was supported by the United States before 9-11, and extraordinarily, uh, what is extraordinary is that after 9-11, after, let's say, a decade, they're being supported by the United States again, and U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and the Israelis, alongside the Golan Heights, Israelis had been supporting both ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And you know that ISIS was initially Al-Qaeda. They broke away from Al-Qaeda. So they're not all that different from each other. And, and they, too, were supported by U.S. allies. Anyone can figure find that out if they look at the WikiLeaks documents and that Hillary Clinton in 2014 knew that U.S. allies, such as Saudi Arabia, were funding ISIS. The United States knew that Turkey was carrying out extensive oil trade with ISIS. So right now, the United States is trying to prevent Iran from exporting oil, but it allowed ISIS to export oil. It was only uh, the Russian Air Force, when it got involved, that it started to bomb those tankers. The U.S. Did, flew over them, but never bombed the tens of thousands of tankers that were active day and night. And then, of course, we have the... Defense Intelligence Agency document that was partially of 2012 that was partially released. And I think your listeners should definitely read that document. It was partially uh, released, I think, by Judicial Watch. But um, in that document, uh, it was it's, it was specifically stated that U.S. allies in the region were supporting the extremists and that those extremists wanted to create uh, a state between Syria and Iraq. And, of course, that place later was later called uh, the Islamic State. It was ISIS that occupied that territory. And General, the famous General Michael Flynn, who uh, was Trump's national security advisor for three weeks, if I'm not mistaken, he was the head of the, the Defense Intelligence Agency at that time. And he did an interview in Al Jazeera years later admitting that the United States took a willful decision to support these extremists through its allies. So when the Americans talk about Iran's regional role, the reality is that the Iranians have been fighting ISIS and al-Qaeda when the Americans were supporting them. In Syria and in Iraq, if it wasn't for Iran, we'd have black flags flying over Damascus and Baghdad as we speak, and Lebanon would probably have fallen as well, and Yemen too. So areas which are occupied by American allies in the region, like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, have al-Qaeda. Areas which are occupied by Iranian allies have been cleared from al-Qaeda and ISIS. So I think the the regional role of Iran is very different from what the Americans are claiming, uh, if anyone really takes an objective view of this situation. And with regards to Iran's defense, the the International Institute for Strategic Studies 
says that Iran's military expenditure is less than that of the Israeli regime, it's less than that of Turkey, it's less than that of the Saudi regime, it's less than that of Iraq, and it's even less than the expenditure of the United Arab Emirates, which has a, a passport-holding population of 1 million people. Iran, which is a country of over 80 million people. This is the International Institute for Strategic Studies. People can go online and find the material. It's, it's not hidden, and it's, not a, it's, a, it's a mainstream Western organization that uh, carries out this sort of analysis. So, the, as I said, if people really take into account how the United States was in the 1950s and how African Americans and Latinos, and the Japanese, and Filipinos, and Asians, and others were depicted in the United States, in the media, on TV, in the movies, then I think people, if they look at it from that perspective and take a look at Iran and imagine that this narrative is very similar to what existed back then, for these minorities, then I think they would better understand why this demonization can exist in the United States and how it could possibly be so far from the truth and, and such a caricature of reality, because the, the same thing existed very openly, clearly, just, half, just you know, 50, 60 years ago in the United States itself about, with regards to its own citizens. And in terms of you, you brought up a few interesting points there uh, with regards to Syria. And is, is, is this also one of the main drivers of, of U.S. policy, of, of U.S. backing out of the nuclear agreement? Certainly it's that's in the interest of Israel uh, to want to evict uh, or somehow coerce Syria or Russia to move Iran out of Syria uh, because Israel has its own set of interests uh, with what it wants to do uh, in Syria, uh, mainly acting with impunity, judging by uh, the hundreds of airstrikes over the last few years. But is, is, that, is that really is, is Israel's strategic interests? And I would say Saudi Arabia's strategic interest, uh, is, is that really also what's driving? Could that be what's driving U.S. policy and not, not U.S. interests? Well, Saudi Arabia is not a country that is being led by Saudi Arabia is not a country that is being led by uh, a group of people or a political party. It is a, uh, it is a single person who's in charge. He basically runs and owns the country, and that is Mohammed bin Salman. So he's following his own personal interests. In the Israelis, they too, in my, so, so he's, he, he, he's trying to push the United States in a particular direction. But he's doing it in coordination with the Israelis. The Israelis are, are basically forcing the United States or pushing the United States to sacrifice its own interests for the sake of Israel. Iran's position in Israel, and this again is something that I'm pretty sure many Americans don't know, and even if they hear it, they still it'll be difficult for them to believe it because of the demonization of Iran that's gone on for so long. But the Iranian position on Israel is very simple. Iran's position on Israel is, uh, is identical 
almost literally identical to its position on apartheid South Africa. Iran said that apartheid South Africa is not legitimate because apartheid South Africa was a supremacist regime which considered the majority, the African majority, as less human than the minority. And these people were segregated and, ha and did not have rights. So the Iranians under... After the revolution, before the revolution, Iran had very close relations with apartheid South Africa, just like the Europeans and the Americans. After the re revolution, Iran broke off ties with the apartheid regime, and they considered it to be illegitimate because it is morally illegitimate. And this was at a time when the resistance in South Africa, and such as the African National Congress, was considered by the United States to be a terrorist organization. It was in U.S. law that the ANC was a terrorist organization. And on the other hand, Nelson Mandela, the head of the ANC, was also considered, according to U.S. law, as a terrorist. So when the United States supported apartheid South Africa, Iran post-revolution opposed apartheid South Africa, and it considered it to be illegitimate, Iran, morally speaking. Iran's position on Israel is the same. What Iran is saying is that Israel, as an apartheid state, must cease to exist. And that the Israelis must put aside the policy of apartheid. And that Palestinians must be treated, because they are the natives of the land, as equal human beings with equal rights. And they have the right of return. That is basically Iran's policy. So when Iran said Israel must cease to exist, the Americans said the Iranians are th threatening the Israel with obliteration. But the irony is that that's not ever what Iran said. But it is what the United States president has been saying about Iran. Because Trump has said repeatedly he's spoken about obliterating Iran. And even the Israeli prime minister, he gave a speech last year, standing beside the country's nuclear facilities, and threatened Iran with destruction. So while the United States and the Israeli regime have literally threatened Iran with obliteration, what the Iranians said, and there's, always, there's this very famous quote of the Iranian president where they said Israel must be, uh, I don't know, obliterated or whatever, but that's a a willful mistranslation, and I think Juan Cole, an American academic, discussed, uh, who's no, who was no fan of the previous Iranian president, just explained how this uh, was a mistranslation, and it was a mis willful mistranslation. What Iran was basically saying from the beginning and continues to say is that Israel must cease to exist, but as an apartheid regime, just like South Africa. So the Israelis and the Saudis because they cannot tolerate this narrative of Iran, they are basically pushing the United States towards confrontation with the country. And both the Israelis and the Saudis have been supporting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. For example, the Israelis alongside the border with Syria, alongside the occupied Golan Heights, towards Jordan, for years, ISIS occupied that territory, right alongside Israeli forces. And they were supported by the Israelis. 
to the north and to, towards the Lebanese border, you had there was Al Qaeda for years. So the the the, the troops between between the Israeli troops and the Syrian army, they were two organizations, ISIS and Al Qaeda. ISIS towards Jordan, Al Qaeda towards Lebanon, and Israel was supporting both of them. And Israel acknowledged their support. The former head of Mossad acknowledged this again on Al Jazeera. Different Israeli uh, senior officials acknowledged that they support that they. There's even footage of uh, of Israeli uh, of of uh, militants who were injured being treated in Israeli hospitals and that sort of thing. So. The Israelis have been supporting ISIS. The Israelis have been supporting Al Qaeda. The Saudis have been supporting ISIS, and the Saudis have been supporting Al Qaeda. And the tensions that we see in this region are largely because the Saudis and the Israelis want to create confrontation between Iran and the United States. So the Israelis want to sacrifice American lives and American interests for the sake of people like Netanyahu, and in Saudi Arabia for the sake of Mohammed bin Salman. And is it, is it also a case that, uh, speaking about Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, that it might view Iran as an economic rival in the region if, if Iran's able to have uh, a, 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 some stability in its economy, it's able to update and modernize uh, its, its oil and gas capabilities, uh, that it might provide a, a rival uh, in the region that might sort of usurp Saudi, who seems to be uh, in probably the dominant um, economic position, because with economic power comes political influence as well. Uh, after that, uh, is is this is this Saudi Arabia seeing Iran as a as an existential threat? Well, basically, Saudi Arabia is Mohammed bin Salman, and his interests are self preservation and continued rule over the country, and. Saudi Arabia is a country that's named after the family, something which you don't see anywhere else in the world. So people are disenfranchised. And the Saudi regime is completely dependent on oil. Unlike Iran, which has a large agricultural base, it has an industrial base, Iran produces... I mean, Iran produces, as, as, you, as, you, as we all saw, uh, its own missile defense capabilities, which drowned a $200 million U.S. drone. They downed it with a $20,000 Iranian-made surface-to-air missile. The Saudis don't even produce their own uh, guns. They import everything. The Saudis don't produce their own food. The Iranians are uh, very advanced. If people go and look, look it up, the Iranians are um, one of the leading countries in nanotechnology and stem cell research. Saudi Arabia doesn't have any of this sort of thing because it is basically a country that is corrupt and the royal family owns everything. They literally own the country. And now it's even, even the royal family is being disenfranchised by Mohammed bin Salman after he arrested hundreds of the princes and his own cousins and his own uncle and so on. So I don't think that Saudi Arabia has a national strategy. Saudi, has a, Saudi Arabia has a strategy that is basically pursuing the interests of one person. And I also, by the way, think that the same is not so different in Israel. 
Because Netanyahu is thinking more about Netanyahu than he's thinking about Israel. The reason why he's creating all these provocations and pushing the United States towards greater tensions is because, partially at least, of his own corruption trials. Him and his wife and the, 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 the trials that uh, they are facing uh, and the court cases that they are facing in Israel are in serious trouble. So they are trying to keep, divert attention away from their problems at home and to keep people thinking about foreign enemies and foreign adversaries so that they can, can win elections and, and then block the judiciary from uh, putting him on trial and uh, potentially putting him in jail. So while, the you know, I think in general, Israel the Israeli regime has been treating Palestinians in an inhumane fashion. But this particular prime minister in Israel is someone who is actually sacrificing the interests of his own Israeli constituency for his own gains, or at least to prevent himself from getting into serious judicial trouble. And uh, and and where where do you see the current situation heading? Uh, I see that uh, the UK, on the orders of the US, just detained an Iranian oil tanker just a few days ago. Oil that was bound for Syria, who's under embargo basically, uh, and can't get fuel. And uh, the the British have seized this. It it, it veered into Gibraltar uh, waters apparently. But uh, John Bolton said this was fantastic news, and he was really supporting this. He said it was great, and he called it, he said, uh, Tehran and Damascus shouldn't be profiting off this illicit trade, he called it. So you have now sort of piracy on the open seas. This is uh, taking it to another level. Um, but uh, is, isn't, it, isn't it the case, Dr. Morandi, that there is a... There's very little margin for error right now. If you look at the incident with the, the the drone, this tanker, the various provocations coming from the U.S., although they're they're claiming Iran is provoking them, but it seems to be the other way around. There's very little margin for error. There seems to be a huge risk of war right now. And how how are you how are you seeing this in Iran? How are people seeing it? What are people saying right now in terms of the alert level and the seriousness of it? Uh, because it is, there is a feeling creeping in in the West that things are getting a little bit too, too tight for negotiations right now. How is it looking on your side? I think it's quite clear that the confiscation of the oil tanker is a, is actually a sign of how Europeans and Americans treat ordinary populations. This fuel was heading allegedly towards Syria so that people could have fuel. The Americans want to deprive people from fuel. And that's what the Americans had, have done in, in Yemen. The Americans and the Saudis have uh, imposed starvation on the country to get their way. And that's what the Americans did in Iraq. They imposed sanctions, and uh, according to some estimates, a million children died. And after a million, a half a million of them had allegedly died, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State at that time, Madeleine Albright, said it was worth it in an interview. So, you know, the United States destroyed Libya. It was the most wealthy country in Africa, and now it is a country where slaves are sold openly. The United States is trying to destroy the 
Venezuelan economy to get its way. So they sacrifice people for their own interests. That's that is something that the world sees. The world views this, and anger and hostility grows against the United States as a result of this sort of behavior. So, and also there is no blockade on Syria. This is not a UN decision to prevent oil from getting to Syria. The British action was done after an American request, and the British are weak because of Brexit, their country is in crisis, and they want to get into Trump's good books. That's more or less it. But for the last few years, no one was blocking fuel from getting to Syria. This is the first time a tanker is being blocked. So this violates international law. Americans have no right to, to steal Iranian oil or the British or to steal a ta their tanker. And this, of course, is going to increase tensions. And I think it's, it's pretty clear, and I think Trump understands this, that Iran is not a weak country. I, mean, I know that in the United States they like to say how the American armed forces is second to none and to create this you know, huge nationalistic pride among ordinary people. But war is war. No one is going to win. If, there is, if the United States government carries out a war against Iran, first of all, we now know that Iran is militarily very competent. The very fact that they shot down a drone that cost twice as much as an F-35 with an Iranian-made surface-to-air missile shows that Iran is capable. Second of all, ever since the illegal U.S. occupation of Iraq, the Iranians have been, they've been developing their defense capabilities, and they've been building underground uh, defense facilities where across the Persian Gulf and across the Gulf of Oman and alongside the Strait of Hormuz. So you have underground uh, military bases with tunnels, networks of tunnels all across the south of Iran. If there's war between Iran and the United States, all of the oil and gas facilities in the Persian Gulf will be destroyed. They are completely unprotected. They cannot be protected, and they produce gas and oil, which is, I mean, if there's some small explosion, it would it would be catastrophic. All these facilities will be destroyed. The tankers will be destroyed. That would immediately lead to a global economic catastrophe because the price of oil will go so high, all businesses across the world will begin to collapse. It doesn't matter who imports or who exports oil anymore. Ordinary people will not be able to continue working. So then you'll have, of course, uh, war across the region. Iran has very powerful allies in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Yemen. Countries like Saudi Arabia would immediately collapse, and especially the Emirates, because they're completely dependent upon oil. The Emirates only has a population, a passport population, holding, holding population of one million people. It has seven million indentured servants. Do you think that the, the 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 dictatorship is going to be able to maintain control, and then the Yemenis would immediately go into Saudi Arabia, and so would probably the uh, the forces in Iraq. So it would be a catastrophic regional war, and then you'd have millions of people leaving the region towards Europe, 
and you would have economic catastrophe across the world. Imagine what happens if the price of oil sh shoots up. What people? How many people will be moving from Central and Latin America to the United States? And the United States will be having, as the United States will be having its own economic crisis. So I think the sane people in Washington recognize that this is not a winnable war. Iran is not Iraq. Iran is not Libya. Iran is not Venezuela. Iran is not Vietnam. Iran is a very large and powerful country, but more importantly, most of the oil, you know, the, the key oil and gas assets in the world are right alongside Iran. And there's no way that they will survive uh, a war between Iran and the United States. So, it, you know, that would be catastrophic for the world. The United States would not win. No one would win. So it's hard to really imagine the United States government moving in that direction. I mean, I, I recognize and I don't believe that Trump is a, is a, is a sensible person. I, I don't believe he's an idiot. But I don't believe he's a sensible person. So I think, he, he, I think he's smart, although in a, in a sort of twisted way. But I think he knows quite well what this would a war would mean. It would be a catastrophe that it just we simply cannot calculate. Yes, yes, and and mind you, Qatar would would also be uh, a potential target uh, as well. Obviously, Bahrain, uh, who's hosting the Fifth Fleet. So, and these are all within a very short distance of of Iran. I, yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, forget. Forget the military installations. If the oil and gas facilities in the Persian Gulf are destroyed, and forget the Strait of Homos being closed, that would be a sideshow. Iranian missiles, Iranian, you know, the cross, the crossfire, military divers or combat divers, they could easily take out all these installations. These are, you know, a small explosion in each one of them <coughs> would be catastrophic for that uh, for that particular facility. So that would uh, that would drive up oil prices not to one hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or three hundred. It would probably go to four hundred, five hundred dollars a barrel, and then you would have the collapse of the economy everywhere. And the U.S. is already in a dangerous place because. Of the uh, of the debt, and because of uh, the implications that uh, that have resulted from what happened a decade ago in the United States, the United States hasn't really recovered from the crisis in two thousand, the economic crisis in two thousand and eight. And then, if something like this happens, it would be catastrophic. I mean, it would be catastrophic for Iran. But it would be catastrophic, in my opinion, even more for the United States because they have so much more to lose than Iran does. And so, what what are the chances uh, if 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 the if we avoid? Lastly, the last thing I'll I'll probably uh, question I'll ask you is if they're able to avoid, for common sense reasons, a a military confrontation. What what about the economic warfare? Because what will it take for sanctions to be lifted? Because it seems to me. Like this, this is seen as the kind of favorable option to the American public. It's almost like, in a twisted way, the moral option, the nonviolent option. They they view sanctions as anodyne compared to military intervention, and this is for various reasons. But 
how can sanctions be lifted or is this a case of that they're never going to be lifted and economies and governments will just have to continue working around sanctions and develop other avenues of trade uh, and commerce and eventually uh, somehow these sanctions will lose uh, their effect over time or or will it take Europe to to buck the trend what do you see a, a solution to to the the silent war as it were this is the the economic war uh, that's currently strangling the Iranian economy first of all while the sanctions are biting they are not destroying the Iranian economy I mean anyone who travels to Iran right now will see business businesses kept being carried out people going about doing their jobs and going to restaurants and going on vacation it's not the americans are not as nearly as powerful as they think they are and anyone who travels to iran could see for himself many countries don't even need visas to come to iran so uh but obviously the sanctions have an impact and the iranians are going to push back and they are pushing back. And increasingly, they're, they're going to push back at countries like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, who are engaging in economic warfare with the United States. But keep this in mind, that Trump himself admitted that the United States has wasted, from his estimates, I think he said six or seven trillion dollars in this region. The more there's pushback from Iran, the more the costs are going to be for the United States at a time when the United States needs to spend this money elsewhere. And the more the United States pushes Iran, the closer Iran moves to Russia, to China, and to American adversaries. Because that's a, that would be natural. You move towards those people who are not hostile towards you. So the Americans are empowering China. They're running up their own costs. They're empowering Russia. And they're isolating themselves from different parts of, of the world. So while they can kill some Iranians through medical medicine, shortages of medicine, or they can drive the price of uh, certain cancer medicines where uh, cancer patients will no longer purchase them because they don't want to drive their families towards financial ruin. So they can, you know, some of these people can take pleasure in killing innocent people. But these actions are not going to serve the interests of the United States. They're going to make the United States pay more, and they're going to make the rivals of the United States more powerful and more globally influential. Yes, yes. So there's a number of overarching trends that are already in motion right now. And so certainly the geopolitical center of gravity, the economic center of gravity is drifting eastwards. And so towards towards Asia, towards China, and Iran is in a very good position to benefit from this, uh, certainly as, as are other emerging economies and countries uh, in that region too. So we'll see. Uh, how this works out in the short term, but uh, in the long term, uh, certainly there's great prospects in the short term. Uh, there's a lot of risks uh, that we're still looking at. So, But uh, we really appreciate uh, your time, uh, Dr. Mirandi. And um, also, uh, you can see Dr. Mirandi on a number of international channels. His, his also work is available. Lots of interviews on YouTube, specifically with Al Jazeera, RT, and a number of the other networks uh, as well. And so we want to say thank you very much uh, for joining us this week on the Sunday Wire, Dr. Morandi. Thank you for having me, and uh, I wish you 
and your listeners uh, a very good weekend. Thank you very much. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Dr. Mohammed Morandi from the University of Tehran, and uh, a great discussion. If you've just joined us on the live broadcast, if you missed any of that, that will be available uh, on the recording after the show and also on iTunes and the other podcasting platforms. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to join you on the other side for our final segment of this week on the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back after these messages.